0: you guys online. Um, I know that you guys can see me and, and, and hope that you are enjoying today uh, as we worship together. We are continuing in John chapter 11. John chapter 11 this morning and, and the question that we're answering this morning is how can we live forever? How can we live forever? And, and this morning is, is really a, a message about uh, resurrection. We are going to look at it this week uh, in God's providence, this is where we're at in the book of John. We're going to look at it this week, and we're also going to look at it next week as well as we begin to talk about the Easter and, and Jesus' resurrection there. But this week, we're in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Now, John chapter 11 is a long chapter. Again, uh, we're looking at the whole chapter today, but, but I just want to read a portion of that just to get us into the text as we begin to think about... Jesus and what he has done and how he should captivate us. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity, Lord, to gather even though virtually, God. uh, Thank you for technology and the opportunity that we have to to have a church service, to, to open your word, to sing praises to your name, God. And as we open your word today, God, Lord, draw us into yourself. Captivate us today with, with who you are and, and what you have done. Reveal your glory to us this morning as we walk through this text. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ponce de Leon is generally credited with being the first governor of Puerto Rico, as well as he's credited as the one who discovered. Florida. And, and while those things are true about Ponce de Leon, there's one thing that is attached to Ponce de Leon's name that is, is not true. That is more of a myth. It is, it is a legend. At some point in history, the legend became, became made that, that Ponce de Leon traveled to Florida in search of the Fountain of Youth. And to this day, there are several sites that you can actually go to in, in Florida that are thought to be the Fountain of Youth that Ponce de Leon discovered. And of course, none of these are actually the fountain of youth at, at all. But people still, they still go and they, they visit them. They still drink from them. They, they still believe that, that the water that they drink in these fountains is going to provide them with healing, that it's going to allow them to live forever. And people do this even though those who have come before them have eventually died. People continue to drink at this. And if you go and you type in you know, Google search and you begin to look at the images of, of the fountain, of youth that you might find in Florida, you, you look at that and you think, like, why would anybody ever drink from these fountains? Uh, They're they disgusting looking. Many of them are. Now, some of them look nice, but, but many of them are disgusting looking, and you're thinking, why would anyone ever drink from these mountains? But people still do. People do because they believe that it's going to sustain them. Then we have to ask the question, well, why do we make legends Why do do people visit these sites and drink this water? Why are we on a constant search for the fountain of youth? And I believe it is because we have this this innate desire to live forever. And we have this desire because we were created for eternal life. Adam and Eve, when they were created in the garden, they they weren't created to die. They were created to live with God and His good and perfect creation for all of, of eternity. But they sinned against God. They rebelled against Him. And because of that, the curse of the fall came into this world. Death entered into this world. You see, in the world we live today, no one lives forever. Some people live longer than others. Some people, they might live into their 80s. Some people live into their 90s. Some people live even to be 100 and a little bit beyond that. But, but people eventually Die. Their, their bodies eventually degrade. It eventually breaks down. We cannot continue on forever, and that happens because the world in which we live has been affected by sin. But while sin has corrupted this world, while sin causes our bodies to die, there is hope. We can live forever. And no, I have not discovered you know, the fountain of youth that Ponce de Leon could not discover, the, the one that has remained a mystery for all of these years. And if that's not the case, then then how? How can we live forever? Well, as we begin this text, we encounter a man who is ill. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the the Lord's feet with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him, saying, "'Lord,' He whom you love is ill. And so we're told a number of things here in these opening verses. We're told that Lazarus is, is ill. We're told that, that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, brothers and sisters, we're told that, that they all three of them had this intimate connection with Jesus. We, we learn here in these verses that Jesus loves them. And this is not just some passing connection that Jesus has with them. No, it's not like he just ministered to them once. No, they have this intimate relationship with them. They are friends. They're partners in ministry. With their brother ill, Mary and Martha, they, they send word to Jesus, hoping that, that Jesus will break, will, 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 will uh, drop everything, and that he will come to them immediately, that, that he would drop everything and come to Bethany, that he would come and he would heal Lazarus because he is ill. He's about to die. And then we look at the text and we see well, well how does Jesus. Respond, and in, and in verse four, we see that when Jesus heard it said, he said, "This illness does not lead to death. it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it." Now, where have we heard something similar to this before? Well, we heard this back with the blind man. There we, we learned that this man was born blind, not, not because he sinned or his parents sinned, but we learned that this man was born blind for the glory of God so that God's power might be made known. And we see that the same thing is going to happen here. And this should clue us into the fact that something miraculous is going to take place in the passage that we are reading. And even Jesus' first response, you know, that, that this illness is not going to lead to death, this is a hint of what is going to take place here. and So tuck those ideas in the back of your mind as we continue through this passage this morning. Second, we see here that that Jesus also responds in the sense that He believes this is going to occur for the glory of God, and in turn, this is going to occur for His own glory. In other words, he believes this is an opportunity for him to show his power. This is an opportunity to show what he is capable of, how great and mighty he is. It is an opportunity for him to reveal himself. And, and this, this fits into the narrative of John. You know, we, we, We've looked at this gospel and we see that this is a, a come and see gospel. We see that this is an, an opportunity that John is presenting Jesus for who he is so that we might be captivated by Jesus. John is seeking to, to draw us in here. And he wants us to see that, that Jesus is greater than anything that this world could ever offer us. He's greater than money and wealth and possessions. He's greater than health. He is greater than everything. Jesus is better than all of that. As we continue through the passage, we see why that is the case. Look at verse 5. Now, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, I know that, I know that the question that's probably running through your mind is like, well, if Jesus loves them, if Jesus has the ability to heal Lazarus, why, why in the world does he not just run to Lazarus immediately and heal him? Why does he decide to stay two days longer? I know that if I had the ability to heal someone, I wouldn't stay two days longer. No, no I, would, I would run to them and I would heal them. I would, I would do what I could in order to provide them healing. But Jesus does not do that. Jesus instead decides, hey, I'm going to delay a couple of days and see what happens. And I'm sure you're thinking something like that right now. Why is he doing that? I know that I thought that when I... First read through this passage when I first began to study this text. That was one of the first questions that came to my mind. And so, why is Jesus delaying? Well, we know why Jesus is delaying. Jesus is delaying because he believes that this this instance is going to lead to his glory. And so, we have to ask, well, well, how is Jesus delaying? How is this going to lead to his glory? His friend is about to die. I mean, he can do something about it. He can go and he can heal him. Yet, Jesus chooses not to go. Jesus chooses to stay two more days. How in the world is this going to lead to Jesus' glory? Well, If we keep going, we're going to find out. In verse 7, we learn that Jesus finally decides it is time to go and to see Lazarus. And he makes this known to his disciples. And and his disciples then learn where Lazarus is at. They learn that Lazarus is in Bethany. And Bethany is just a couple miles away from Jerusalem. And you remember the last time they were down in Jerusalem, what happened? Jesus almost got stoned, but he escaped. And he left that area. And now he's wanting to go back. And the disciples are like, Jesus, uh, uh, we, we can't go back to the area. We can't go back to Bethany. We can't go back to Jerusalem. Do you know what's waiting for you there, Jesus? The officials are waiting for you. The religious leaders are waiting for you. There's a price on your head, Jesus. We cannot go back there. You will be killed. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's time. We must go. We must go to Lazarus anyways. And before they leave, we learn something crucial about Lazarus. So pick back up with me in verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. They're like, look, Jesus, I mean, Lazarus is just asleep. He's going to be okay. We don't need to risk your life to go down there to heal him. But then Jesus starts to shoot straight with them in verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And so we learn here that that Lazarus is not really asleep. Lazarus is literally dead. But Jesus is thinking of Lazarus' death as him being asleep. That should clue you into something else that's going to happen here. And then Jesus says something interesting in verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. And so Jesus is like, look, Lazarus is asleep, and then he tells them, really, no, Lazarus is dead. And then he says, look, I am glad that I wasn't there. This is for your benefit that you might believe. And we've got to wonder, well, well how is that the case? I mean, Lazarus has died. Jesus' hope of, of showing his power, Jesus' hope of, of showing his greatness is gone. I mean, It's not like he can turn water into wine. It's not like he can feed 5,000 people here. It's not like he's going to heal a blind man. It's not like he's going to heal a a lame man. I mean, this man is dead. There's nothing there for him to do. And so how is this going to reveal his glory? How is this for the disciples' benefit? How is this for our benefit? How is Jesus going to make his name, his glory known? Well, as we continue the text, we learn that Jesus eventually makes it to Bethany. and We'll pick back up in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And so the first thing that we see here is that that Lazarus has been dead for four days, and that is significant. I mean, John includes this in here for a a particular reason, and so we've got to explore that for a moment. You see, some rabbis believed in, in Jesus's day that the soul of the person who had just died would stay around for a while, you know, up, up to three days until the body began to, to, to set in, the de- de- decomposition began to set in, then the, the soul would leave. Now, this is not what, this is not what the Bible teaches. Uh, this is what the rabbis in Jesus' day believed. The Bible teaches us that, that once we die, uh, we, we don't hang around. Uh, our soul doesn't hang around. You're in the presence of the Lord. You're in the presence of the Lord either in judgment or you're in the presence of the Lord in eternal glory. where you are going to live with him for all of eternity. But, but there are some people who believe that, that, yes, the soul hangs around. The rabbis and Jesus today believe that people today believe that. They believe there's certain sort of prayer or ceremony or ritual or rite that has to take place in order for the soul of someone to pass off into another world. But that is not what the Bible teaches us. Here we see that that Jesus is encountering what those in his day thought. And that's important. That's an important point for us to consider. Jesus here is addressing the cultural ideas, and he's he's coming at that with true truth. He's meeting people where they are at and helping them to see that, that what they believe is. Is not correct. And, that, and that's what we have to do as well. We have to understand our culture so that we might be able to address it with the gospel. And just so you know, we, we, we are living in a post Christian culture now. We live in a culture where, where Christianity is not the dominant religion anymore. And because of that, people they don't feel a need. Uh, they, they don't feel a pull. They don't feel a desire to to, to seek after God. They don't, have a, they don't feel any pressure, any cultural pressure to come to church anymore. They're just as happy to download a meditation app, utilize that, and then go to brunch with their friends on on Sunday morning than they are to come to church. And not only that, but, but Christianity today can be seen as a dangerous idea In the culture, something something to rid society from because it produces people who are haters. Uh, Something that 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 is seen as that can be seen as evil by some people, and instead of society you know uh, embracing that, they would we would reject that. And we even see that recently in the news and the headlines with you know the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell. People are attacking him for for his comments at the White House or even Franklin Graham, the Samaritan's person in New York City and the efforts that are there that people are attacking him because of his conservative Christian beliefs and and saying, why is he even here serving our city? Has the government failed us that much that we might need that to take place? You see, people are rejecting Christianity today. It is not embraced by society. It is rather pushed out. And I know this is not the world that that many of you grew up in, but this is the world in which we live now. We live in a post-Christian world where the nuns and not the Catholic type are on the rise every single year, where people are not embracing Christianity, but they're pushing back against it, where it's no longer the dominant cultural religion of the day. It is no longer something that people are running towards. And we've got to understand that that is where we're at. We've got to understand the reality of where we're at. We can't continue to look back to, to the good old glory days and say, you know, if we just continue to do things the way that we used to do them, then, then people are going to come to Christ. We can't just open up shop and open up the church and, and people are going to pour in. We've got to be on mission for Jesus. We have to find ways to address the culture with the gospel in a way that will connect with people so that they can understand that Jesus is better than anything that this world could ever offer us. That Jesus is the one who provides us with true salvation. He's the one who provides us with true hope. Now, now, let me just say we don't do that by watering down the gospel. We don't do that by seeking to be accepted by the culture. Instead, we do that by understanding the culture and, and pushing into those areas of false belief with the true belief of God's Word, the true belief of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and helping them to see that it is Jesus who is better. And so, so we're not capitulating to the culture, but we're not, you're not trying to be accepted by the culture. Instead, we are presenting the gospel in such a way that it transcends transforms the culture we see that jesus is doing that here he's taking this cultural idea and he is addressing it with true truth and that's what we must do as well now to come back to the narrative we we learn that that lazarus has been dead for four days not three days but lazarus has been dead for four days lazarus is in other words dead there is no doubt about the fact that lazarus Is dead, And along with learning that Lazarus is dead, we we see that, that these mourners have gathered around Martha, they've gathered around Mary, and when Martha hears that Jesus is there, she leaves Mary, she leaves the mourners, and she runs to Jesus, and she meets Him before He even enters into the town. Martha is the first to talk in verse 21, and she says to Jesus, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.'" But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, reading that, you might initially think, well, well, Martha is upset at Jesus, that she's running out to Jesus. She's reading Jesus, the riot act, and she's saying, I cannot believe that you delayed. I can't believe that you were not here. But I don't think that's what Martha is doing here. And I said, I believe she knows that Jesus is able to heal. This is why she called him in the first place. And I think that what she's doing is she's really just stating a fact. If Jesus had been there, she knows that he would have worked healing in his life. She knows that her brother would not have died. And I also don't believe that, 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 that she is expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. You know, her comment in verse 22 it might, it might seem as if that is the case. But when you go over to verse 39, you see that, that she kind of says, Look, if we open up this grave, if we, if we roll back this stone, I mean, it's going to stink. Lazarus is dead. His body is, is decomposing. And so I believe it's clear that she's not necessarily expecting Jesus to resuscitate Lazarus. And said, Well, what I believe that she is saying here and stating this fact about Jesus is she's saying, Look, Jesus, I have not lost confidence in you. She knows that he's able to heal. She knows he has an intimate relationship with the Father. He hasn't lost that connection. He hasn't lost anything. The timing, the timing just wasn't right. And God's timing is not always our timing and vice vice versa. Just because God can do something doesn't mean that God is always going to do it. We've got to remember that. And we can't get upset at God and be mad at God just because he doesn't do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. God's timing is not always our timing. Martha doesn't get upset with him, and neither should we. Now, with that being said, look at how Jesus responds to Martha in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And hearing that, Martha reveals in verse 24 that she does believe that a resurrection is going to take place on the last day. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she said, look, I know there's going to be a resurrection. And, and there is going to be a resurrection. We have a body and a soul. We're not just, we're not just spiritual beings. There's a body and there's a soul. And God, he, he created us in that way. God cares about the physical side of things. There's not, there's not this separation between the two as if the physical world is evil and bad and, and our spiritual side is good. That's not, that's not what's taking place here. No, we have a body, we have, we have a soul, and God is going to resurrect Us on the last day. God is also going to restore the physical world in which we live to a world that is perfect. To a world that that is going to operate in the way in which He originally created it to operate. But how? How is God going to restore this broken world? Let's keep going. Verse 25, And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so the resurrection and restoration is going to happen because of Jesus. Jesus says here that he is the resurrection and the life. And I like what one commentator says. He, He says Jesus is diverting Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place in the last day to a personalized belief. In Him who alone can provide it. The resurrection isn't just something that is going to happen. It is going to happen because of Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus, they will be resurrected and they will experience life. The world in which we live will be redeemed because of Jesus. In Colossians chapter one, nineteen, 19, it says, "...for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then in verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the resurrection, restoration is going to happen. Resurrection and restoration is going to happen because of Jesus. And when Jesus says this, he is making a claim that is both inclusive and exclusive at the same time. You see, Christianity is both radically inclusive, yet absolutely exclusive. First, Christianity is radically inclusive. Notice what Jesus' words here in verse 25, or the second half of 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's whoever believes in Jesus. Christianity is inclusive. It is inclusive in the sense that all people are able to come to Christ. Christ is available to every nation, tongue, and tribe. No one is excluded because of what they look like, uh, of the language that they speak, of where they were born, or what they have done in the past. Everyone is able, no matter where they live in this world, no matter what culture they come from, no matter what nation they come from, is able to come to Christ. See, Christianity is, is radical in that way. And, and, and out of this, the idea that, that racism should be killed as well comes. This is why Christianity is radically different. This is why those who are, who are Christians should have a heart, should, should, should want all peoples around this world to come to Christ. Christians should not be racist in any way whatsoever. We should seek to call all peoples around this world to Christ. And so Christianity is radically inclusive, yet at the same time, Christianity is absolutely exclusive. Notice again what Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Christianity is exclusive in the sense that only in Jesus, only in Jesus, will we experience eternal life. There are not multiple ways to heaven. There are not multiple paths. No, All all roads do not lead to the top. There is only one way, and that way is through Jesus Christ. He is the one that the Father has chosen to come and to pay the price for mankind. He is the one that the Father has chosen to use to reconcile the world to Himself. It is only through Jesus. Only by believing in Him can we experience eternal life. You see, Christianity is radically inclusive, yet at the same time, it is absolutely exclusive. Only in Jesus will we experience life. There is no other way. All roads do not converge at the top. And everyone who lives and believes in me, Jesus says, shall never die. And so if you want to live forever, then you must believe in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Only in Him will you experience resurrection and eternal life. Only in Jesus is that the case. But you might be asking the question, well, well, what? What must I believe in order to experience eternal life? I mean, do you just need to believe that Jesus is a good God? Do you just need to believe that Jesus is a good person, that that we should follow his example, that that he was a prophet who came telling us about how we might work our own way to God? Is that what we must believe or must we believe something else? Well, after Jesus tells Martha and us that that he is the resurrection and the life and, and all of those who believe in him will experience eternal life, He asked Martha a question at the end of verse 26, and he's asking all of us this question as well. He's asking you this question this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And look how Martha responds in verse 27. She says, Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Notice that Martha believes that Jesus is The resurrection of the life. Martha believes that Jesus is the Christ. She believes that Jesus is the one that the Father has chosen. He is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to pay the price that we cannot pay. He is the one who has died on our behalf. He is the Son of God. He's not just another man. No, He's not just another prophet. He is literally God incarnate, the second member of the Trinity, and he is the one who has come into the world. God himself has come on a rescue mission to save his people. This is what Martha says she believes. And how about you? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection, and the life? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the God-sent Savior? Do you believe that Jesus is God Himself who has left His throne in heaven to come to this earth to seek and to save the lost, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might experience life? Do you believe that about Jesus do you believe you see Jesus is not only asking Martha this Jesus is asking you this today and so do you believe these things about Jesus if you believe these things about Jesus, if you would repent of your unbelief, if you repent of your sin, of, of living life how you think that you should live life and doing things your own way and you would turn to Jesus and you would say, look, I can't save myself, but you are the one who has saved me. I know that you love me. I know that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy. I know that you have come to seek me, that you have paid the penalty for me, that you in your work provided me with salvation. If you would believe that today, then you, you too can have salvation. You too can live forever. This is how you might live forever. And so do you believe these things about Jesus? And if you're struggling to believe, let me show you why you should believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life why you should believe that jesus is the god sent savior remember how all of this started right jesus said listen this has happened for my glory this has happened so that you might see that i am the resurrection and the life this has happened so that you might believe in me but for up till now, what we have yet to see that Jesus has revealed His glory. He's just talked about his glory. He's just talked about the resurrection and the life. He's just talked about these things. Martha has responded in a, in a positive way, and she has said that Jesus indeed is the resurrection and the life. But how do we know? How do we know that He is capable of resurrecting us? Well, first, we see here that Jesus is grieved by the effects of sin. Beginning in verse 28, Mary comes to Jesus. And Mary essentially says the same thing as Martha. If you were here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. And she's weeping when she says this. And we're told in in verse 33, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. You see, Jesus is is grieved by the effects of sin on us. Jesus loves us. Jesus cares for us. Jesus wants what is, is best for us. You see, our God is not a distant God. Our God is intimately involved in our life. And we see that with Jesus. God incarnate has come. And Jesus cares for us. His heart breaks over our struggles over the effects of sin on this world, God's heart breaks over the fact that the coronavirus is, is, is ravaging the world right now. And God is not aloof. God, God knows that this is happening. His heart breaks over what is happening in the world, over how this, this sin has ravaged our world. That might lead you to think, well, well, if God's heart breaks over that, well, what is God doing? Why isn't God acting? What is God going to do about this? Well, let me just say that God has acted. God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ. He has literally left His heavenly abode to come to this earth to deal with the effects of sin on this world. He's come to provide us with release from sin. He's come to release us from the bondage of sin, to redeem us and to reconcile us to himself and to reconcile this world to himself to deal ultimately with sin's effect on this world. God has done something about it and will continue to do something about it. You see, Jesus' love, it springs him into action, and we see an example of this beginning in verse 38. there Jesus, he, he arrives at the tomb, and Jesus is, is deeply moved again, and he calls for them to remove the stone that is in front of the tomb. And after he prays to God, in verse 43, he cries out with a loud voice, "Lazarus, come out." And guess what happened verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with the cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. He does the impossible. Jesus raises a dead man, a man who has been dead for four days, whose body is, is beginning to, to decompose. He raises the dead so that he might live again. This is where this narrative has been driving all along. and This one act here reveals Jesus' glory. It reveals His power. It reveals His ability. Nothing is too great for Jesus. Not only can He turn water into wine, not only can He feed 5,000 plus people, not only can He heal a lame man, not only can He heal a blind man, something that had never been done before, but Jesus here, He, brings a dead man back to life nothing is too great for god jesus is not distant he is a god who cares he is a god who grieves over what happens in this world and it is his grief it is his love that springs him in to action and if that's not enough to convince you to convince you that you should believe in jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, so that you might experience the resurrection and the life. There's one more thing that we need to look at in this narrative. After, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, we are told that, that many people believe in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. But we're also told that there are some people who run off to the religious leaders and they tell them, the chief priests and the Pharisees, what has happened. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they, they gather together and they begin to, to, to think about, well, what should we do? What should our game plan be from here on? I mean, if, Jesus, if these people begin to follow Jesus, We're done. The Romans are going to come in. They're going to shut us down. We are going to lose our place of authority and our place of prominence. What should we do? And in verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, "'You know nothing at all, "'nor do you understand that it is better for you "'that one man should die for the people, "'not that the whole nation should perish.'" He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. You see here, Jesus gave himself for us. Caiaphas thought that that he was saying, listen, we're going to kill Jesus and the nation is going to continue. But it is prophecy here that Caiaphas is saying that Jesus is going to die so that we might live again. Jesus dies and he goes to the cross, as we'll get to in John. He goes to the cross for us. He goes to the cross, he, he gives himself for us so that we might be able to experience the resurrection of life. Jesus pays the penalty of sin. Jesus defeats death. Jesus releases us from the bondage of sin, from the curse of death. Jesus dies in our place so that we might be released from that, so that we might be able to resurrect and have life, life eternal. Jesus gave himself for us. And a God who would do that, a God who would, who would give Himself for us, a God who is so grieved by sin that he, that he springs into action, that He leaves heaven and He comes and He faces this world, the sin and the corrupt nature of this world. And that He literally goes to the cross where our sins are placed on Him A perfect person who does not deserve death, who does not deserve God's punishment, but Jesus is punished in our place. A God who would do that for us is not a distant God, is not a cold God, is not a God who does not love us. It is a God who loves us, and it is a God who should captivate us. We should be drawn in by Jesus and for who He is. The resurrection that we see here is just a foretaste of what will happen it's just the foretaste of what we're going to see next week as we look at jesus's own resurrection it's just the foretaste of of what will happen in the future when jesus returns and how we will be resurrected the question is will you be resurrected to life or to eternal death do you believe that jesus is the christ That He is the god sent Savior who has come on a rescue mission for His people and all of those who believe in Jesus would experience life. That He has worked on our behalf and that there's no work for us to do except for to repent of our unbelief and to turn to Jesus in belief. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus pay the penalty for you. That he is the resurrection and the life. If you believe that this morning, then you can have life. Then you can live forever. And that's how you can respond. You can respond by believing, by believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Whether you would call yourself a believer today, or maybe you're not a believer, you're just just seeking out the truth. You can respond today by believing in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior and you can experience resurrection and life on the last day. You can experience release from bondage and sin now. You, you can experience release from fear and anxiety. You can experience hope in the midst of this crisis by turning to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You, Lord, that He has died on our behalf, that He has paid the penalty for us, God. We thank You, Lord, that He has the power to resurrect us as He has resurrected Himself, Lord. God, we ask that You would Work in our life that we might believe in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. That we might continue to believe. That we might always believe. And Lord, even now, we pray that You would work in the lives of those who do not believe. Who may be watching this message right now, Lord, that You would drive the truth of Your Word into their heart, so that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So that they might repent so that they might turn, so that they might believe and experience hope, experience resurrection and life. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.